Good afternoon, everyone, and once again, welcome to Restore 10. As we opened up yesterday, I asked the question, why? Why Restore 10? Well, many people, including Christians, have a wrong conception of the law of God. We've taken many surveys among young people and older people, and we have found that a lot look at the law of God as restrictive. They look at it in a negative way. They think it's overbearing. Some think it's just a set of rules. And some people even look at it as a checklist of do's and don'ts as if they, if they do it right, they'll make it into the kingdom of heaven. You know, I believe that God wants to restore not one, not two, not nine, but he wants to restore all ten in our lives. You might say, well, I, I already know about the Ten Commandments. I'm already keeping them. You know what? So did the rich young ruler. He told Jesus the same thing. But then he would ask because he, he had a feeling that something was missing. What lack I? Well, friends, what do we lack? We're going to discover that today as we continue. I read a quote from yesterday, and I think it's good to repeat it again today. It comes from the Great Controversy, 465. The nature and the importance of the law of God have been to a great extent lost sight of. A wrong conception of the character, the perpetuity, and the obligation of the divine law has led to errors in relation to conversion and sanctification and has resulted in lowering the standard of piety in the church. So yes, there's many out there that claim they know about the commandments of God but a misconception of what it means to keep them, a misconception of what it means to live them, has affected people's conversion and the transforming power of sanctification in their lives. And because of that, we see a weakened Christian church today all over the world. And the Seventh-day Adventist church is not immune to it. Friends, God created man for a relationship and in every relationship, there's boundaries that are put in place if it's going to be healthy, happy, and safe. I read this yesterday, and I, I just, these two quotes, I may, I may read them every day because they're so meaningful and so powerful. Thoughts on Mountain of Blessing, page 32, 52, I'm sorry. There is not a commandment of the law that is not for the good and happiness of man. You hear that? Not one commandment is not for the good and happiness of man. All of them are there for us, both in this life and the life to come. In obedience to God's law, man is surrounded as with a hedge and kept from the evil. But he who breaks down the divine erected barrier at one point, in other words, if you, if you disregard one commandment, if you try to insert your own, your own theological understanding of how something is to be done, in that one commandment, you destroy its power. You destroy its power. At one point, has destroyed its power to protect him. When this happens, we open a way by which the enemy can enter in and waste and ruin. And so it's important. Every one of them are important. You know, yesterday we looked at the first commandment starts out with, you shall have no other. Why? 
Why would God say that? Because he says, I created you. I redeemed you. I've been providing for you. I've gave the ultimate sacrifice for you, my son Jesus. And so I provided everything. And in my faithfulness, I've invited you into a covenant with me. You see, when we stepped, in, stepped into that baptismal tank back there, or wherever it was, when you stepped into the baptism, maybe in the river, in a lake, when you made that covenant promise with God, you, you had told the whole world that you're entering into a personal, intimate relationship with Him and that He would be first and foremost in your life. That's what it meant to take that vow. Just like when a husband and wife, they, they stand before one another and they exchange those wedding vows, they're committing to one another in an intimate, deep, personal relationship that is distinct and separate from any other relationship they are to have. That is what God called us into. That is what we accepted when we stepped into that tank. So today's topic, blind man sees in color. I invite you to bow your head with me as we pray. Gracious, loving Father, we bow before you humbly in the name of Jesus. Lord, thank you for the gift of salvation. Thank you for being faithful and committed to us as we discussed yesterday. And thank you for the beautiful opportunity to allow you to open our eyes once again that we may behold beautiful things out of your law. Lord, may there be a, a revival in our lives of primitive faith and godliness as we allow you to work in us to will and do of thy good pleasure. Lord, may Jesus be seen, may he be heard, may he be experienced in today's presentation. In Jesus' name I ask, and I thank you for hearing me, Lord. Amen. I invite you to open your Bibles with me to Exodus chapter 33. Exodus chapter 33. It was after the law had been spoken by God audibly, after the children of Israel said, yes, all that you have said we will do, it wasn't long after that that they would find themselves making a golden calf and behaving as the world would in a big party, worshiping that golden image, proclaiming that was their God that delivered them from Egypt. What that must have done to the heart of God. But Moses would intercede in their behalf. And Moses would find himself up in the mountain and he longed for something deeper than what God had already revealed through the deliverance of Israel, through the provision through that time all the way up to this moment. He would say to God in verse 13, Now therefore, I pray thee, if I have found grace in thy sight, show me now thy way. Why did he want to know God's way? that he might know him. Now that was, I, when, I, when I read that and I was thinking about it today, a thought came to my mind. Had not God been showing him the way? Sure he had. But Moses was so taken in by the beauty of God's character, he wanted something deeper. He wanted something more intimate. 
He wanted to get as close to God as he possibly could. He was concerned that God was going to forsake his people because they were, they were prone to wander. And Moses was pleading, Lord, have mercy. Don't depart from me. Stay with me. I want to know you. And God would promise in verse 14, and he said, my presence shall go with thee, and I will give you rest. And we'll talk more about that rest on Thursday. And he said unto him, if your presence will not go with me, carry us not up from here. For wherein shall it be known here that I and thy people have found grace in thy sight? Is it not that thou goes with us? Now, knowing God the way he desires us to know him has a result. Something happens in that relationship. And Moses understood that, and he would say this, so shall we be separated, I and thy people, from all the people that are upon the face of the earth. You see, in this covenant promise, in this covenant relationship, there was supposed to be a distinct separation from any other relationship that they were involved in as a nation with other nations. Just like a man and woman when they exchange those marriage vows and they come together, that's supposed to be unique. No other relationship is to be like it in their life with any other human being. And so they were to be distinct and separate. God would tell them in Leviticus eleven forty four and 45, he would say, For I am the Lord your God. Ye shall therefore sanctify yourselves. In other words, you shall separate yourselves and be distinct. And you shall be holy, for I am the holy. For I am the Lord that brings you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. And you shall therefore be holy. Again, he would say, I am holy. He would repeat that several times. In the second commandment, it would read, You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in the heavens above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children of the third and fourth generation of those that hate me, but showing mercy to thousands to those that love me and keep my commandments. Now, why would God ask his people this? Why would he command them this? Well, he would tell Moses, you tell the whole congregation you shall be holy because I am holy. You see, God has never used an image created by man. He's never used anything, a sculpture or anything, to reveal holiness to us. Let me ask you a question. How would you describe holiness to a man that's been blind from birth? How would you describe that to him? You see, you and I have never seen God 
Moses would tell God, look, you cannot see my face and live. Right? Moses would say, show me your glory. I want to see you. But he says, no, you can't see me and live. I would imagine it would be like trying to explain the color blue to a man that's born blind. How would you do that? Would you pour water on his arm and say, that's what blue looks like? He would look at you and say, no, that's what wet is. <laughs> if you were to tell him, I can show you what, I can tell you what white looks like. And you take a cotton ball and you rub that on his arm. Will he understand the color white? No, he would not. No more than can we understand what holiness looks like by looking at an image or a carving or a statue. It cannot be depicted in such a way. And so when God would respond to Moses' request, he would give him not a picture of himself. He would not allow him to see his image. But he would give him a beautiful word picture of what holiness looks like. You read that here in Exodus 34, starting with verse 5. It says, And the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed by him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiven iniquity and transgression and sin, and that by no means will clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children unto the third and fourth generation. Holiness. Okay, thank you for that. I appreciate it very much. All right. Holiness, friends, is what God declared to Moses in a beautiful word picture. You know, I think I was talking to somebody this morning, and we were talking about how the angels say, holy, holy, holy. I can only imagine that's all they can say as God speaks and something beautiful comes into existence they would say holy 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 and then I said to her you know what I can imagine they repeat the same thing as they observe God's interaction with fallen man as they as they look at God being merciful and long-suffering with us as they look at God being patient and kind and forgiving as he showers us with truth and abundance. As they looked upon Jesus on the cross and dying for you and I, I can only imagine they could say nothing else other than holy, holy, holy. 
God's glory is revealed in his name, which reveals his character. Oh, that I may know thee, Moses would ask. By beholding, Moses understood he would become changed. He wanted to be like God in character. He wanted that restoration in his life. And as I look at this proclamation here, God declaring his name, it was right after the children of Israel had fallen into sin. And the first thing God says, don't miss it, the first thing God says is, unmerciful. You know, when you start your walk with God, the enemy's right there to trip you up, just like he did with Israel. But I want you to know that God is merciful. He is long-suffering with us and extremely patient. They were very self-confident. All that you have said, we will do. They were sure of themselves. And as they fall and would fall time and time again, God would demonstrate these very attributes. Merciful, long-suffering, gracious, abundant in goodness and truth. I tell you what, you can read the whole chapter. I'm going to read a few verses here from Psalm 78. But <clears throat> you read the whole chapter of Psalm 78 when you got time. And then read Psalm 106. And I am just amazed. And I sit back in total awe in God's patience with his people. It says here in Psalm 78, verse 36 through 41, says, nevertheless, they did flatter him with their mouth, and they lied to him with their tongues. For their heart was not right with him, neither were they steadfast in his covenant. You know, Jesus would tell the people of his day, and I think he even speaks to some of us today. He says, you honor me with your lips, but your heart, your heart is very far from me. That was their condition. That's how they treated God. And it would go on to say here, but he, being full of compassion, forgave their iniquity and destroyed them not. Yea, many a time turned he his anger away and did not stir up all his wrath. For he remembered they were but flesh, a wind that passes away and comes not again. How often did they provoke him in the wilderness? And grieve him in the desert. Yea, they turned back and tempted God, and they limited the Holy One of Israel. Now, that last scripture floored me when the, fir the first time I really took it in. Think about this they limited God. Now, God is all-powerful. God speaks and things happen. How is it that mortal man can limit God? It's because he gave us a gift. It's called the freedom of choice. Freedom of the will. God will never violate that. And you look at the history of Israel, 
and how they dealt with God after making that covenant, he never violated their freedom to choose. He always let them choose. And what it did, it, it limited. When they chose the wrong way, and when you and I choose the wrong way, it limits what God can do for you and me. Because God wants to abundantly bless. God wants to impart peace and joy and happiness in our life. He wants to give us security and confidence. But when we go our own way and do our own thing, we limit what God can do for us. And that's what the children of Israel were doing over and over again. Steps to Christ, page 34, would tell us every wrong trait of character, one sinful desire persistently cherished will eventually neutralize all the power of the gospel. Can you imagine that? Freedom of choice gives us the ability to neutralize the power of the gospel. So as you read the history of Israel, two things constantly stand out that were a snare to them. One was idolatry. The other one we'll talk about later. So where did it start? Well, it tells us here in the book of Ezekiel where it started. And the word of the Lord came unto me saying, Son of man, these men have set up their idols in their house, on their porch, where? In their heart. In their heart is where they were placed. In Jeremiah 1.16, it would tell us this. I will pronounce my judgments on my people because of their wickedness. What was the wickedness? They were forsaking God. And he would go on to say, in burning incense to other gods and worshiping what their hands had made. Now, the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 10, 11, that now all these things had happened. They're to be an example to you and I, whom the end of the ages have come. We're to learn from what has happened in the past so that we don't repeat those same mistakes. So you may say, well, I'm not bowing down to any idol. I don't worship an idol. There's no idol in my heart. I don't worship the work of my hands. Well, listen to this quote here. Our creator demands our supreme devotion, our first allegiance. That's what you would expect in a marriage covenant, right? Anything that tends to abate our love for God or into it, or to interfere with the service to him becomes thereby an idol. Now look at the list. Let's see if God speaks to us today. Let's see if he speaks to you. With some, it's their lands, their houses, their merchandise, our idols. Business enterprises are prosecuted with zeal and energy while the service of God is made a secondary consideration. 
family worship is neglected, secret prayer is forgotten. Friends, if you are not taking the time to gather your family, and I realize sometimes schedules conflict, but you have to be intentional to try to get together and have that family worship time. Because I can tell you what, the enemy is extremely intentional and very persistent to divide and conquer your family, to destroy your marriage, to destroy your family, destroy your relationship with God, and destroy the church. And it happens when we cherish idols in our heart. Again, from Steps to Christ. Whatever shall draw away the heart from God must be given up. Mammon is the idol of many. The love of money, the desire for wealth, is the golden chain that binds them to Satan. Reputation and worldly honor are worshipped by another class. The life of selfish ease and freedom from responsibility is the idol of others. But these slavish bands must be broken. We cannot be half the Lord's and half the world's. We are not God's children unless we are such entirely. Friends, in giving ourselves to God, we must necessarily give up all that would separate us from him. Remember, Jesus would tell us, whosoever be of you that forsakes not all that he has, he cannot be my disciple. So selfish ambition when we're so concerned about our reputation and our, our business, building our portfolio, we're not demonstrating mercy. We're not demonstrating compassion. There's no long suffering with people. It's about getting gain at whatever, whatever cost it is. And it's a sad, sad thing as we look at our world today and we see this happening. Many, many people are worshiping idols in their heart. This point here, the life of selfish ease and freedom from responsibility. Over and over again, I've heard people say, when asked to make a commitment to serving God, serving in the church, I don't have time. I got too much on my plate right now. Really? With all that God has done? I talk to people about going on mission trips and they'll say, you know what, I, I can't get away from work right now. Well, you, you took a week off and you, and you took a pleasure trip. Well, why not take a week off and serve the Lord and bless somebody's life? So friends, does God have a right to be jealous? <laughs> he sure does. He has the right to be jealous. Just as a husband or a wife would have the right to be jealous if their spouse had set their affections and their devotion somewhere else or on somebody else. 
You can only imagine the heartache that would take place. We see it in our world today. So how would you feel if it was happening to you? How would you feel if your spouse was betraying you? They had set their affections on somebody else. They're so devoted in something that they neglect you. It hurts. It breaks your heart. How would you think it affects God? You know what he would tell Israel? I was crushed. Can you imagine that? I was crushed by their adulterous heart which has departed from me and by their eyes which play the harlot after their idols. It breaks God's heart when he sees his children behaving in such a way they're so consumed, their affections and attention, their treasure and their time and their talent is consumed somewhere else and they have no interest other than maybe showing up once a week to do the checklist. Yep, I went to church this week. Yep, I, I stopped by prayer meeting. But there's no commitment. You know, God's all in in his relationship with us and he's asking for the same. He, he has the right to ask for the same. Jealousy happens when an individual violates the boundaries that have been agreed upon in the relationship. Friends, when you stepped into the baptismal take, you took a vow. You made a commitment that there was nothing going to be more important to you than your relationship with God and your service for Him. God looks upon you as the apple of his eye. In Zechariah 2.8, he would tell us, he that touches you touches the apple of his eye. Supreme devotion, our first allegiance, our attention, our affection is to be with no other because that's the commitment we made to God when we stepped into the baptismal tank. That was a covenant we made. So God is appealing to you. He tells us in Isaiah 1.18, he says, come now, let us reason together. Let's talk about the situation. Don't live in denial. If God's put, a, if he's touched you today, as you read those quotes, if he has spoken to you, then acknowledge that you have transgressed. That's what he would ask of us. He would tell us here in the book of Jeremiah and Ezekiel, only acknowledge thy iniquity, for thou hast transgressed against the Lord thy God. And ye have not obeyed my voice, said the Lord. Turn, O backsliding children, saith the Lord. Why? This is amazing. He says, look, I am married to you. I'm married to you. And God does not like a bad marriage. He says to us, when we acknowledge our sins, when we acknowledge our iniquity, when we acknowledge, Lord, you're right. I've had an idol in my heart. I've had selfish desires. I have worldly ambition. I have cared more about my life, my portfolio, my retirement, than I've cared about the cause of your church and the message and mission going forward. 
He said, just acknowledge it. That's what he's looking for. He says, if you can do that, if you can do that, if we can do that, if I can do that, he says, then we can, we can work from there. He says, then will I sprinkle clean water upon you, and you shall be clean from all the filthiness of your idols. I will cleanse you. Beautiful promise. But it starts with us owning up to the fact that, yeah, yes, Lord, you're right. I haven't kept my part of the covenant. I haven't lived up to holiness. I have not demonstrated mercy and compassion for my fellow man. I haven't been long-suffering. I've not held up truth. I've not been just. So today, what would it look like as we embrace these promises? You know, the Bible tells us, or steps to Christ would tell us here, as you read the promises, remember they are the expression of unutterable love and pity. The great heart of the infinite, the great heart of infinite love is drawn toward the sinner with boundless compassion. We have redemption through his blood and forgiveness of sins. Yes, only believe that God is your helper. He wants to restore his moral image in man. And as you draw near to him with confession and repentance, he will draw near to you with mercy and forgiveness. So why is holiness important to us? I don't have this on the screen, but I'd encourage you to go home and write it down and memorize it. Hebrews 12, 14. Why is holiness important to us? says, follow peace with all men and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. You see, if God does not restore this in our life, if we don't give him the permission to do so and we don't act in faith on what he's calling us to do, we're not going to see the Lord. There's many of Christians sitting in the church and come in the church week after week And, and it will be a sad day when they hear one side proclaim, well done, good and faithful servant. And another side will hear, I don't know you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. That would be so heartbreaking. But it doesn't have to be like that because God says only acknowledge and I have many promises for you. They come from my heart. So as God is writing holiness in the life, what can we expect it to look like? What should it look like in your life? Well, 2 Corinthians 6, 14, and onward up to chapter 7 says this. And these are just a few examples. There's many, but time restrains us. Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what concord has Christ with Beel? Or what part has he that it believes with an infidel? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As he has said, I will dwell in them 
and I will walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. You know, there's a clear distinction between night and day, light and darkness, and I fear that there's many that look for the gray area. But I can assure you, there is no gray area in the eyes of God. You're either all in or you're not in at all. It would go on to say, wherefore, come out from among them. See, there's a separation from the world as holiness is being written in the life. There's not a pleasure in violence. You're not going to sit there and play in a, a violent game. You're not going to watch something that's immoral. You're going to be separating yourself from that. Come out from among them and be separate, saith the Lord. Be distinct. Be unique. Do not be embarrassed to be a Bible-believing, Ten Commandment-keeping Christian. Touch not the unclean, and I will receive you, and I will be a father unto you. Beautiful promise. And you shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. Now having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting what? Holiness in the fear of God. The Bible would tell us in Psalms 119.9, it asks a question, how shall the young man cleanse his ways? By giving heed thereto according to thy word is as we respond to the counsel, cleansing can take place. There will be mercy and compassion revealed in the life. Job would declare, Job 29, 12 through 16, I have delivered the poor that cried, and the fatherless, and him that had none to help him. The blessing of him was ready to perish, came upon me, and I caused the widow's heart to sing for joy. I put on righteousness, and it clothed me. My judgment was as a robe and a diadem. I was eyes to the blind, and feet was I to the lame. I was a father to the poor, and the cause which I knew not, I searched out. Mercy and compassion for our fellow man will well up in our heart. Yes, we will lend to the poor because in doing so we will know that we are lending to the Lord and God will repay. We will be mindful of the widows and the fatherless. And you know what? When, when, we, when we can't find somebody in our sphere of influence that we can minister to in such a way as this, Job said, when I couldn't find it, you know what? I started searching for it. I would search for that family. I would search for that fatherless child. I'd search for that widow. And I would see what their need was. And I would take the blessing that God had given to me and I would share it with others. That's what holiness looks like when it's being written into life. We will comfort others with the comfort that we've been comforted with. It won't be woe is me in everything that happens in our life. But we will look for an opportunity and praise God for the blessing 
that he has bestowed upon us and the opportunity to witness and share with others and comfort them. You know, people get diseases. It's a result of sin. People die. It's heartbreaking. People lose their jobs. Economies collapse. Families are devastated. But in all of that, God brings comfort. He brings peace. He brings hope. And as you experience it, he's saying, you know what? Go out and share that with somebody else. And just as God has not dealt with us after our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquity, we will not treat others how we think they deserve to be treated, but we will show the same compassion and the same long-suffering that God has shown to us. There will be a love for righteousness and a hatred for sin. Now, I can tell you, friends, I see a lot of Christians out there in the world that, oh, they love justice. They're marching down the street. They want justice. But they have not hated sin so much to desire to put it away in the life. It's not just about loving what's right, righteousness. It's about hating and being appalled by sin, violence, crime, immorality, and so on and so on. That's what it would look like if righteous or if holiness was being written in the heart. A hunger and thirsting after righteousness and a hatred for sin. But it's something, it's not something that comes natural. It's something we got to pray for every day. 1 John 1, 7 would tell us, but if we walk in the light, if we walk in the word of God, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. It says, we say, Lord, write this in my heart today. And as God is writing that, he's, he's cutting out those other things in our life. Remember, he said he'd give us a new heart and he'd take away that stony heart, that self-willed heart. So friends, in order for God to be God in our life, there needs not only to be a belief in God's word that it is true, there must be a surrendering of the will, a yielding of the heart, and setting our affections upon him. And when we do this, oh, friends, there will be a faith that works by love that purifies our soul. So out of God's mercy, he's making an invitation to you and I today. He says this in 1 Peter but as he which has called you is holy, so be holy in all manner of conduct or conversation because it is written, be holy for I am holy. So is your desire to accept that invitation? Do you want God to write holiness in your life? Who doesn't want mercy in a relationship? Tell me, who doesn't want long-suffering in a relationship? Who doesn't want goodness and truth and forgiveness in a relationship? 
I don't think there's one person that would tell me, nope, I don't want that. Give it to somebody else. No. We want it in our marriage relationship and God wants to write it in our heart. And so knowing that there will be a desire to, he gives us a promise to make it happen. He says, now where the Spirit of the Lord is, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is what? Liberty. And that liberty comes as we behold God, we become changed. It would read, but we all, with an open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, the holiness of God, are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even by the Spirit of the Lord. 2 Corinthians 3, 17 and 18. What a beautiful promise he gives to us. He gives us the invitation, and then he says, you know what? I have a promise that goes with that. In the book of Peter, it tells us it's these precious promises that God gives to us that we can be a partaker of his divine nature. Christ is ready to set us free. Do you want to be free? He says, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. Steps to Christ, page 64. He desires to restore you to himself, to see his purity and holiness reflected in you. And if you will but yield yourself to him, he that has begun a good work in you will carry it forward to the day of Jesus Christ. So let us pray more fervently. Let us believe more fully. And as we come to distrust our own power, let us trust the power of our Redeemer. And we shall praise him who is the health of our continents. Friends, yes. We're like that blind man. We cannot see God's image. But because of the beauty of his holiness, we can be blind yet see in color the beauty of God's character. Do you want holiness in your heart? Is that your desire? Then I invite you to bow your head with me and pray. Loving Father, we thank you for your goodness and faithfulness. As you demonstrated yesterday, you are all in. You are committed. You are devoted in this relationship with us. And you want to write faithfulness in the heart. Today we look at another commandment. And we understand that, Lord, you do not want us to make an image. You do not want us to make an idol. And act like that's what gives us peace. That's what gives us power. That's what gives us hope. That's what gives us courage. No. You tell us to look upon you, your holiness, and receive the blessing that we long for in our life. That the world cannot give, the world cannot fulfill, but you can. So Lord, write in our heart Grace, peace, joy, truth,
compassion for a fellow man, right holiness. In Jesus' name we ask, Father, and we thank you for hearing us. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.